But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now Paul tells Titus a few things here about the salvation that we have received from God. He tells us that it comes to us as God's goodness appears. It comes to us as God's loving kindness appears. That salvation came to us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But positively, it came to us according to His own mercy. So we are saved not because of the things that we have done, not because of righteous works, but because God is good, because He's full of loving kindness, and because He's merciful. Now, if we wanted to splice this verse a little in order to dial in on the subject of mercy, we could say that from this text we learn that God saved us according to His mercy. Not out of His mercy, as if He had a barrel full of mercy and He said, I'll pull out a little mercy and sprinkle it, but rather according to His mercy or in direct proportion to His mercy, we have been saved. There's a correlation between the vast mercy of God and His saving work for us and in us and to us. And so if we are to understand our salvation in order to better understand God, or vice versa, if we're going to better understand God in, in order to understand our salvation, then we have to know at least something about God's mercy. Because mercy plays a crucial role in our salvation. He saved us according to His mercy. Now with that being said, mercy is our topic. Now let's look at the workbook and I'll read the opening statements. Three of the most beautiful and dearly loved concepts found in the Scriptures are the mercy, grace, and patience of God. In these three jewels, the love of God is truly manifested. In this chapter, we will consider the mercy of God. The word mercy refers to, and then he gives us three other words, loving kindness, tenderheartedness, or compassion of God, toward even the most miserable and pitiful of creatures. In God's mercy is found a great manifestation of His love. In many of the scriptures given below, the idea of mercy is communicated through the words compassion and loving kindness, or even the ESV translates the, the term uh, steadfast love. All of these are sort of interchangeable words that the scripture uses. Now, as it is with many of God's attributes, oftentimes... The clearest distinction between them is by paying attention to or observing the way that God is relating to some creature. Why do I say that? Well, he said, in God's mercy is found a great manifestation of His love. Well, are we studying His love or are we studying His mercy? Well, they are somewhat related. But when we're thinking about mercy, we're paying attention to a particular trait in the object of His mercy, the creature. And then we're, we're looking back to God and we're saying, okay, now I see 
how mer- what mercy looks like because I have looked at the creature or the object of His mercy. The clearest distinction between them or the clearest understanding of the attributes oftentimes comes as we observe how God relates to what is not God, the creature. For example, Psalm 18, 25, and 26. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. In other words, there's something about the the disposition of the creature in, in some sense that allows them to see a particular attribute of God or allows us to view a particular trait of God. Merciful men are going to be able to see the mercy of God. Blameless men will be able to see the blamelessness of God. Pure men, the purity of God. Uh, Crooked men will be able to see the torturous nature of God. These attributes are observed as God relates to a creature. Now in history, and especially in the Scriptures, very often we might not be the merciful, the blameless, the crooked man. We might just be reading a story, a narrative where we are a third party observing a merciful person. We're observing a blameless person. We're observing a crooked person. And we see, ah yes, I see how God responds. He did this to that person. What do we call that? Well, there might be Hebrew words or Greek words underlying that disposition. But then we have English words. And very often our English words are all over the place. Sometimes it might be mercy. Sometimes it might be loving kindness. All these different words. So how are we to distinguish? Well, we get to watch this and we see that statement in Psalm 18 sort of play itself out as we observe God dealing with creatures and especially the human race. And the reason for that is, as we've said many times, in God, let's say, for example, mercy and love. In God, mercy and love are not two little things that we see happening. This is simply God. But we see the distinction in them as He relates to the creature. And we study them separately because we are able to see how the simple God relates to His creation, which is not simple. We are complex. We are all over the place. We're up and down. We're changing all the time. God is not that way. We always see God through a creaturely lens. What we know of God always comes by way of creaturely relation. We see it through creature lenses. We read it through a, a revelation that is, that is a concession for the creature. And we're, we're always observing it from, from that angle, we could say, from the earth looking up oftentimes. And in many cases, a group of words might be used to denominate the same attribute. And what we, we, what we conclude is, English translators are just doing the best they can with a word that it doesn't exist in our language. We've got to find a word. What does it look like? Well, it, sometimes it's love. Sometimes it's compassion. Sometimes it's tenderheartedness. Sometimes it's mercy. Well, what's the distinction? Well, very often the distinction is found in the object. And that's true specifically when it comes to mercy. Other words, like he just mentioned, loving kindness, tenderheartedness, compassion, steadfast love. These are English words that are very often translating the same Hebrew word. Why translate them differently? Well, because of the object. It, has, it comes with different colors or different flavors, we might think. might say all three of these might differ from one another in various ways. 
the staple of the attribute of mercy. What makes mercy different from just general love? Well, the staple of the attribute of mercy is how creatures are viewed in light of God and how God relates to us in that condition. With this trait that we call mercy, it's loving kindness, tenderheartedness, or compassion. We say, well, how is that different than what we've already talked about? The rest of the statement. In this attribute of God, we see God relating toward even the most miserable and pitiful of His creatures. So we, we have to understand the, the, the status or the place of the creature. See how God acts to that creature in that condition, and we say, oh, that's mercy. Now I get it. To put it another way, because what we see of God is often or so often related to who we are before God, the mercy of God is often best comprehended when we look at ourselves first. See what our condition is, and then look and watch how God treats us. So let's... let's Take a minute and let's just consider who we are. What's our condition? Now, a way that might be most fresh in our minds would be to use 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Remember, this is how Paul is addressing the saints in Corinth and, and, and addressing them with regard to how they were viewed by their culture. He says, you're, you're not wise by your culture standard. Your culture calls you foolish. You're not powerful. They, they see you as weak. You're not of noble birth. They would say you have no notable pedigree. But... What Paul does not say, and I didn't point this out, but what Paul does not say in 1 Corinthians 1 is, now, that's what they think, but here's what you need to do. You need to get up every day, and you walk straight into your bathroom, and you look in the mirror, and you say, I am wise. I am powerful. I am of the nobility, because that's who you really are. He doesn't say that. He says, God chose, God chose, God chose. Remember, it's almost as if he affirmed that for the glory of God and by God's sovereign choice, he did sort of kind of reach down to the bottom of the barrel. That's, that's kind of what God did in most situations. Even by worldly standards, God's reaching pretty low. Now, if we are foolish to the world, in ourselves... Compared to God, we're less than foolish. The world calls us foolish. We could say, you have no idea how foolish we really are in comparison to God who is wisdom itself. We're actually damnably ignorant and willfully blind. They would say, oh, you Christians, you're, you're ignorant. You don't know anything. No, you don't know the half of it. It's far worse than you think it is compared to God. If the, wor the world says that we're weak, well, in ourselves, compared to God, we're the opposite of strength and influence. We actually bring only shame and condemnation and disgrace upon ourselves. They say, you're not weak. We say, you don't know the half of it. I'm, I'm the opposite of strength. If our pedigree is poorly esteemed by the world, 
Well, in ourselves compared to God, not, we're not merely poorly esteemed. We are in a state of condemnation because our pedigree is of Adam. So they would say, Who, who's your family? Oh, you're not of the, of the noble class. No, it's worse than that. I'm of the, the condemned class in Adam. That's our state in Adam. Very often we find confidence in touting the fact that we're made in the image of God. But the reality is we have taken that image and we have raked it across the floor of the garbage dump, soaking up filth and refuse and stink in it. That's what we've done in our sin. We're not only helpless, we're beyond helpless because we have sinned against God. We've made ourselves enemies of God. We've put ourselves in the place of blind, helpless enemies raging against God. Now, another verse that sort of helps us to see how little we are. Isaiah 40 verses 15 and 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now that's all the nations. You're not all the nations. You're not even one nation. You're not even one state or one county or one street or one pew in a little church building of the nations. You are one individual speck of what God says the nations are the dust. And you're, you're somewhere down in there. Somewhere. Less than all of that in comparison to God. This is our, our state. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. What I'm trying to do here is to help you see what our state is, how bad it is. Ezekiel 16, 1 through 6. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Now remember we're reading Jerusalem and the, the covenant people of God as typological of, of the church itself. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. In the beginning of verse 6, God says, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood. Now I want you to think about the picture that's painted here. Again, the attribute of God is mercy. But we're trying to view the creature. We're trying to view ourselves and how, how we are apart from God. So, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. So, so we're, we're, we can picture this. Some of us can picture it relevantly within the past couple days. 
a newborn baby is born, and that baby is not even considered worthy of separating it from what we will eventually call the, the throwaway leftover parts of the gestation process. A helpless newborn baby still laying there attached to its placenta. It's been delivered. Just there it lays. Cord's not cut. Who cares? Why cut the cord? Now, the umbilical cord, as far as I understand, I'm not a, not a doctor, attaches to that stuff inside the mother, and that's how the baby receives its nutrients in the womb. Now, if that cord is not cut, as that placenta begins to rot, that rot will actually begin to be fed directly into the child. So the way that once nourished the baby is now left to be a means of slow, infectious, bacterial death. Cord's not cut. Nobody cares about this baby. It's just been delivered. He says, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt. No effort was taken to wash this baby, this newborn baby from the fluids that cover it. It's clear that there's no ex expectation for this child to live very long. We're not concerned about it. Why waste the time to wash it, to cut its cord? Nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now this baby, we know it's, its whole life it has been spent in the warm womb of its mother. Now it's been brought forth, it's left unwashed, and now it's exposed to the air, which, which would probably be shockingly cold to a newborn baby. It's not wrapped up, just pulled out and left. Now this is, if we came across this scene, it would be saddening to us. If we weren't cold as we read it, it would be sad, saddening to us. Especially mothers, your, your heart would go out for this baby. You're, you're, you're stirred in thinking about this picture of a newborn child. But the text goes even further and says, No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion to you. We, we feel pity reading about this, this baby. God says, there wasn't even that. Nobody even looked with pity. Whatever sentiments of pity that we might feel right now, God says, there was none of that. Nobody cared. And beyond that, we see, worst of all, you were cast out on the open field and by the, end of, or by the beginning of verse 6, wallowing in your blood. The phrase cast out means just that, thrown out, hurled out, propelled through the air into an open field. So again, imagine the scene, a delivery scene in the ancient world. You, you could probably assume there are going to be some groans, some grunts, some screams probably from the mother inside of this animal skin tent that's dimly lit by a candle or a, 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 an oil lamp of some sort. She finally gives her final push. The baby is born, delivered into the hands of a midwife. And the midwife waits a few minutes while the baby cries as the, the rest of the, the contents of the womb are delivered. And taking the writhing baby and the attached mass of flesh, the midwife steps out of the tent, takes the baby by a single leg, and hurls it out into the darkness. There might be a faint sound of this child hitting the ground, maybe bouncing a time or two, maybe sliding through the dirt. 
Maybe there's more crying. Maybe the breath has been knocked out of this baby so that it doesn't breathe for a few seconds. But there it lays. The door flap of the tent is shut and they go back to taking care of mama so that they can get on with their business. And this child lays outside in the wilderness. Can you imagine a more helpless scene than this? There's, no, there's nothing more helpless, nothing more heart-stirring or, or, or gut-wrenching. More, there's nothing more contrary to human nature than a mother delivering a baby and just slinging it out into the wilderness. But that's the picture. A lot of us have seen uh, videos of newborn uh, animals in the wild that are left unattended and predators come up and it, it just it makes your skin crawl. Now, that's, that's just circle of life. That's, sometimes that just happens. It's, but we recognize and we, we feel something in us that says, somebody go and grab that baby a animal, whatever it is, that baby antelope, grab it so that it's not eaten by the lion. We want to protect it. Now, this is a human being. But here, in the image of the people of God, prior to God's coming, no eye pitied you. Nobody watched a video. Nobody was concerned. Nobody thought, hey, somebody should help this kid. Nothing. That's us apart from God. Now, what did God do? We read verse 6 again. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. Now this is God, remember. This is not just a passerby. This is not a stranger, a random person. This is not a, another midwife coming along or another young lady coming along. This is God, the maker of heaven and earth the potentate of time and eternity. There's no one higher, none greater, none more powerful, none more glorious than God. There's none more stately, none more regal, none more majestic, none more noble than God. No one is more happy than God. No one is more serene than God. No one is more sovereign than God. There's none more independent or self-sufficient than God. There's none more content, none more perfectly, eternally, immutably fulfilled than God. God doesn't need this baby. This baby's not going to help God. It's not, there, there's no benefit to God in this. And yet He shows up and He looks and He says, live. He has compassion. He has concern. He takes interest. He acts for us and upon us for our good and for our salvation. That's mercy. God, as high as God is coming down as far as we are in our wallowing, bloody mass of rebellion, helpless as we were, coming as far down as we, He could go and acting for us. That's mercy. This is the relation of God toward even the most miserable and pitiful of His creatures. That's mercy. Now let's look at some of these texts that he gives. First, Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. 
Now, how can that be? Well, because all that He has made is below Him. Everything that God has made is in need of Him. Everything looks up to Him, and therefore His mercy is over all. Every act of care or concern or provision at all, from God to the creature, is an act of mercy. Why? Because it's the one who is high coming down in condescension and caring for His creation. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1.3. Second Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We see here God is the Father of mercies. He begets mercy. All types and kinds of mercy for every creature in every circumstance flows from Him. If you have ever shown mercy... To another creature. That was just some of God's mercy working through another creature. He's the Father of all mercies. All mercy originates in God. The note there says this is translated from the Greek word oiktirmos, which also denotes compassion and pity. The plural possibly indicates multifaceted manifestations of mercy or all types and kinds of Mercies. He is the Father of all types and kinds of mercies. If you ever notice mercy in a person, or you notice a, a tender compassion, even between uh, one creature to another, an animal to another animal, a, a mother animal to its young, that tenderness and compassion, that mercy, finds its supreme climax in God. God is that way. To the superlative. Ephesians 2 4. Ephesians 2 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God is rich in mercy. There's no end to God's mercy. You cannot drain. God's mercy. You cannot exhaust God's mercy. You can't overuse God's mercy. You can't abuse God's mercy. You cannot go so low that God cannot come down in mercy. As a matter of fact, the lower we go, that only opens up the door for greater and greater manifestations of mercy. He's rich in mercy, abounding in mercy, or as he uses these words, opulent in mercy, wealthy in mercy. God is more merciful than we'll ever need Him to be. He abounds in it because He's rich in mercy. Turn to James 5.11. We see it again. James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
the, uh, the phrase full of compassion or compassionate in the ESV is translated from a single Greek word that I will not attempt to uh, say out loud. But it refers to the inward parts of the body, the heart, the liver, the bowels. We've talked about this before. Moved in the inward parts is the picture. It refers to deep emotions or great affections. It's, it's taking something that we understand as people. when you, we, we would say gut-wrenching. I was turned In some sense, God has that sort of merciful compassion toward the creature. Every time I hear about Anthony's wife, his former wife, it's gut-wrenching to me. I can't even think about it. There's, I, can, I, 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 I sympathize with whatever this is in God that is described as just the stirring of your inward parts. It makes you hurt. Now, it's not the same in God, but there's something in God that is relatable, relatable, which is actually far superior to what we experience, far greater than, than what we experience, that the Bible translates in, in these words. Merciful and compassionate. He's moved. He's stirred. God looks at His creatures in this way. Though we know God is not moved with affections in the same way we are, we cannot take that to mean that He's cold or indifferent to the lowest state of His creatures. It's the opposite. Because God is impassable or without passions, that doesn't mean He's lifeless. It's, it's the opposite. It means He's abounding in these things to an extent that cannot even be changed. He is eternally, immutably, climactically, incomprehensibly merciful. He's a merciful God. Turn to Psalm 57.10 with me. For your steadfast love or loving kindness or mercy is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And he explains again how these words are all translated from that same Hebrew word, kesed. We've, we've used this word over and over again. And we say, what in the world does it mean? Can we not come up with a single word to translate this word in our Bibles? And the answer is, no, we cannot. We don't have a word that is as broad and expansive and multifaceted as this word is in God. It extends His faithfulness, extends to the clouds, His steadfast love, or chesed, is great to the heavens. Now, you've heard men talk about the, 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 the three heavens, right? The, the cloudy heavens, the starry heavens, the, the heaven that is, that is a, a, another realm, another register as it were, that we can't even see. What we're saying is as far out as we can look, as far as we can go, this seems to be because it says clouds. It's talking about however far we might be able to see. Use your eyes, use binoculars, use a telescope, use a space station, use whatever you have, the biggest one, the farthest reaching one, whatever you might see as far up and out and deep as you can go, God's mercy surpasses that. You hear somebody explain a light year, I, I just say it does, does not compute. It just doesn't work. It, how can that even be possible? I think they're just making it up. But they're, they're using numbers and speeds and things that we say, 
How can that be? Well, just go. If, if it is true, then just go. Trace it out. And when you get there, what are you going to find? God's mercy is still going. Far surpasses it all. Turn to Luke chapter 6 with me. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. Christ says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And we saw this the parallel passage to this a few weeks ago from Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Back in, in the Luke passage, He mentions the ungrateful. I mean, it's, it, it's easy for us to be merciful to evil men as long as they pretend to be grateful. But, but ungrateful, that, that usually, if we sense ungratefulness, that is usually the switch that turns off the valve. No more for me. If you're not going to be grateful, I'm just, I ain't going to do it no more. Not God. He's merciful. He's kind to the ungrateful. God pities even wicked men enough to send them rain. How many farmers were, were so happy this past week that they said every day on the, on the forecast, there's rain coming, rain coming, rain coming. And how many of them probably looked out and saw their fields and thought this will be good for my harvest and then they went back in their house and they cursed God in some way. They, didn't, they don't care about Him, but He still pours out His blessings upon them. He's merciful. He knew how they would act. He knew if they would be grateful or not, and yet He pours out His rain upon them. Every time you see the rain, you should thank God for His mercy. God is using wicked, unbelieving farmers and even massive corporations that hate you to feed your children and theirs. God can do that because He's merciful. Turn to Psalm 103. We'll walk through this exercise and then we'll be finished. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love. Again, there's that word, however you want to translate it. Steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so, does he, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And He just unpacks these verses or, or gives us the opportunity to look at each verse. Verse 10, God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, very often, you'll hear mercy defined succinctly as not getting what you deserve. Now, I believe mercy is bigger than that, but here we see that, that it's not less than that. He does not deal with us according to 
our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Do our sins have to be dealt with? Sure. Do our iniquities have to be dealt with? Sure. Do we get what we deserve in those instances? We do not. Our sins deserve immediate, unrelenting, eternal condemnation. And yet God has mercy. Even when we sin, and in the providence of God, that leads down a road that leads into some, some trouble and some hardships, some difficulties. And we have to look back and we, we could say, I can't blame anybody but me. God was still merciful because you deserved a lot worse. Verse 11 as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love or loving kindness toward those who fear Him. There, there's that word again, kesed. Mercy, kindness, favor, steadfast love, loyal love. God's mercy extends beyond our ability to understand or even know. It's high as the heavens above the earth. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God's mercy is seen in all things. It's overall, but most clearly the greatest manifestation of His mercy is seen in how He treats us in our sin. How He deals with our sin. See, as creatures, we're low. As sinners, we're way, we're way lower. Creatures are helpless and needy. Baby birds are helpless. Baby kittens are helpless. Baby humans are helpless. We're below that. We're sinners. We're far below these. We deserve wrath and fury. And God's mercy extends even to and especially to sinners. In His mercy, shown preeminently in Jesus Christ, God has actively removed our transgressions from us. He took them off of us. He laid them onto His Son. And He dealt with them in His Son. In the pictures of the, the, the two goats on the Day of Atonement, one is taken out into the wilderness, the other is slaughtered there. The point is, the sins of the people are dealt with. They're carried away from us. He does not treat us according to what our sins deserve because He treated His Son according to what our sins deserve. He got the full, the full weight of it. He got the full outpouring. And we, we sin and we get ourselves into a little mess, a little trouble here and there. Christ bore the full weight of it so that God could extend mercy to us. Verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Now many men show very little mercy to their children. And so this, this analogy falls flat. As a father shows compassion. Well, I don't know what that is. But a good father shows compassion, shows mercy to His children. God is the supreme, exemplary Father of fathers. Even on our best day, when we, we pat ourselves on the back and we say, you know what, I was a good, merciful, tender, compassionate, soft father. I put every one of my kids on my lap. I hugged them good. I patted them. I squeezed them. I talked nice to them. Oh, I was such a good father. God far surpasses all of us put together on our best days. He says the word compassion there is translated from the Hebrew word rakum, which also denotes kindness or loving kindness. Verse 14, For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
We cannot forget this. God created us. He was there when our father Adam was made. He knows what we're made of. And though we have sinned against Him, He still considers our frame. Not, not to overlook sin, not to make sin small. But he, he, he cannot forget. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And He takes into account our condition. We might even say that in Christ, to some extent, God put Himself in our shoes, except without sin, of course. It added nothing to Him. It benefited Him none. God the Son came into the world, put Himself in our shoes, and walked among men, and bore our sins in His own body on the cross out of pity, out of mercy toward us. Now, have you ever shown that kind of mercy to anyone or anything in the world? No, you haven't. This is the mercy of God toward us. When we sin, we have to remember the mercy of God. He does not change. When you sin, He doesn't say, all right, I'm, I'm turning the mercy off now. No, He's still merciful and compassionate and gracious. We cannot forget this. And then just briefly there, the, the final point that he, that he makes is that we are, if we have experienced this mercy, we are to be merciful to others. Now, the, I would say that the, perhaps the greatest way that we can show mercy is by sharing the gospel of the merciful God to people who've never heard it or who need to hear it again. Imagine, go, go, go back to Ezekiel, imagine that you're walking down the sidewalk and you see this baby thrown out into the street. Maybe it's thrown out in front of your feet. Do you, do you step over it and keep walking? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. When you interact with the lost, they are like that baby, cast out, helpless, do you have the same compassion for them? They're on their way to hell. Do you have mercy? Do you show mercy? Is there even a, a, a movement in you at all that says, they probably need to hear the gospel. I hope that there is. We've been shown mercy. We didn't ask. I don't know that any of us did. I know I didn't ask. I didn't come out of the womb saying, could somebody please explain the gospel to me? I need to be saved. No, God worked it out in providence to bring that to me. Most of us are that same way. God brought the gospel to us in mercy. He had mercy. He did not step over us wallowing in our blood and say, well, you're on your own. Good luck. He was merciful. We ought to be merciful. We ought to think of people that way. They're, they're actually in a more detrimental position walking on their way to hell than a baby cast out into the wilderness. Have mercy on people. May God our Father... The Father of mercies, help us to see more of His mercy and give us the compassion and love to pity others and explain His mercy to them. Let's pray.